0: Let's take our Bibles then and turn to page 1001, uh, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And in order that we get the flow, I'll read verse 14 out of chapter 1, just for badness, uh, to help clarify what we're doing as we move into 2. Are there not, referring to angels, are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect Such a great salvation. It was first declared by the Lord, and it was attested to by us, to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. I guess the seriousness of an offense is measured by the one who is offended. That's true in every walk of life. When I was at school, we we used to have some, some of the students were given the role or office of prefect. Prefect to them was a very important office. To us, ordinary mortals, it meant that they were sucking up with the teachers and enjoyed throwing their weight about which they did. So, some rebellious people, and I may or may not have been one of these people, uh, (laughs) delighted in not doing what prefects told us to do. They'd walk into the classroom, and they'd tell us what to do next or whatever. They expected you to jump to attention and go and do what they did, and uh, that didn't always happen. And uh, there was one occasion we made a major mistake Somebody came into the room, told us what to do. We thought it was a prefect. It was, in fact, the headmaster. Next thing, we're all lined up outside the headmaster's office. He puts us in a line. We're all to stand there, cross our hands. He gets out his belt. His belt was a freak of nature. His, His belt, seriously. He held out his belt at this. His belt, his belt was absolutely straight, did not bend. You'd think a belt would bend. This belt was so thick, it did not bend. And there was this approximation between the belt and the crossed hands of these boys, including me. Let me tell you, that is very, 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 very painful when it is brought down three or four times on your hands, and you do this stuff. Your hands are red. You're in agony. You've never felt pain like it in your life. Seriously. So, the seriousness of an offense is measured against the one you offend. And that's a good thing to bear in mind as we come to this passage that we've read this morning, which is a warning passage. You'll find these all over the book of Hebrews. They're kind of interspersed at strategic locations right throughout the book. It's as if it's as if the writer is telling us stuff, and then he pauses, and he looks at us in the eyes, and he says, now, I've done to you. Listen. And he gives us a warning about whether or not we are getting the message or not. That's what he's doing here in this passage. And I want you to notice that it starts with this word, therefore. And you know, like good Bible scholars as you are, having been trained by the very best that whenever you see the word therefore, you ask yourself the question, what is it therefore? And it's there to point you back, back again to chapter 1. See, even in chapter 2, I get to preach a bit about chapter 1 just to keep the thing rolling on. But I do have to do this in order to get the full impact of what we're doing here in chapter 2. He has begun chapter 1 with a comprehensive claim that God, who spoke to our fathers by the prophets, God has spoken finally and perfectly in these last days through one who is Son. And what we're to take from that is everything we have learned about God from the Old Testament, everything we've learned about God, all the freight of ideas and attributes and actions of the being of God, uh, the God of Israel described there, revealed there, we bring all of that freight with us in this word God, and we apply it to the one who is Son. Because the Son, and, and understand it doesn't go any further than this, the word Son is only intended to convey the fact that this second person of the Godhead if we can call him that, shares the very nature of God. Everything you can say about God is shared by one who shares the nature of God, the identity of God. That means he never had a beginning, even though he's of the Father, from the Father, and a son. There was never a time when he was born. He is always born of the Father, always begotten of the Father, always from the Father, from all eternity. The only thing you can say to distinguish them is that one is the Father and one is the Son and one is the Holy Spirit. So in this, in this first chapter, the key, there's a key word that's used twice at the beginning and the end. And that's what I want to kind of draw our attention to because that's what the word therefore is therefore, to show us that connection and it's this word heir, H-E-I-R. Where there's a will, there's a relative. That's what they say, isn't it? And an heir has to do with inheritance and with inheriting something. We're told about the Son, that He was appointed the heir of all things. That's an absolute inheritance. He inherits everything that God the Father has. Now, you can look at that in two ways. You can think of that in terms of what God has made everything. The Son inherits that. But you've also got to think about all that God has in Himself. In other words, who God is. The Son is heir to all of the attributes, all of the power, all of the glory, all of the honor of what it means to be God. There is nothing of God that the Son does not possess. He's the heir of all things. And I want to kind of summarize this using uh, Professor Richard Bockham of Cambridge and St. Andrew's Universities. Uh, He was elevated from Cambridge in England up to St. Andrew's in Scotland, obviously, but he's written a book in which he's analyzed the key features of the identity of the God of Israel. He summarizes them in in seven statements. And I'm going to use those and show you how those seven elements of the identity of the God of Israel are, are are recognized by the author of Hebrews and are applied to Jesus Christ. Let's look at them very, very briefly, very, very briefly. This is just the introduction. So, we'll race through them. First of all, God is the sole creator of all things. That is, everything else that is is made by Him. And so, in verse 2, we read about the Son, through Him also He created the world. Secondly, God is the sole sovereign ruler of all things. Everybody else and everything else is subject to Him. So, we read in verse 8, of the Son, He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Thirdly, God is known through His narrative identity. In other words, We we know God not just from the things we're told about Him, but from the way He works and operates in creation, reaching out to the nations through Israel, and so on. And it's the same with the Son. Verses 1 and 2, God spoke by the fathers, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. So, the story of the Son here on planet earth is part of the narrative identity of God. Fourthly, God will achieve His latter days rule over everybody and everything when all creatures acknowledge His sole identity. There in verse 13, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Number five, the name Lord, uppercase, L-O-R-D, the sacred, unpronounceable, unrepeatable name for God in His unique identity. This name is applied in verse 10 to the Son. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of Your hands. Number six, God alone may be and must be worshipped. Nothing else, no one else. There are no degrees of worship in the Bible. God is to be worshipped and nobody else. Verse 6, of the Son it says, let all God's angels worship Him. And then number 7, God alone is fully eternal, self-existent from the past into the future eternity. Look at verse 12, of the Son it says, you remain, you are the same, your years will have no end. So, in every particular, that which is characteristic of the identity of the God of Israel is the identity of the Son of God. Now, when you look at verse uh, Hebrews 1, the Son is ticking all those boxes, but He's also come to do something for us. That's why we're moving now as we get into chapter 2. He's done two things for us, and these will be unpacked. As we go through Hebrews, he is tasked in his humanity, he is tasked with revelation and redemption. With revelation that is showing us, telling us about God. We've touched on that already, so I'll leave that to one side for the moment. He is also tasked with the work of redemption. People are in danger, people have been taken captive. He is to pay the ransom price with His own blood. He is to rescue people for God. He is to redeem them and free them and so on. That's what that word redemption means. And so, at the beginning of chapter 1, we're told that He's tasked with making purification for sins. His job is dealing with the sin problem. What is the sin problem? Sin is any want of conformity to the law of God. It's breaking the law of God. It's not… It's missing the mark of the glory of God. Sin is that kind of rebelliousness that we have wherever God says one thing and we want to say something else. That sin makes us dirty. It makes us unclean. Jesus comes to bring purification. And we're told that this Jesus has all there is of God because He is the God-man, all the power of God, all the resources of of the Godhead are there with him. The fullness of the deity is there in bodily form. He is adequate. He is powerful. He is able to be the one who rescues us and the one who saves us. So we come to the end of chapter one, which is the immediate lead to chapter two, and it says that we have become heirs of salvation. Heirs of salvation. He is the heir of all things. He makes us the heirs of salvation that He has accomplished on our behalf. And what that, that is saying this morning to you as a believer in this room is that you have salvation, you have eternal life by inheritance. What is the unique aspect of inheritance? The unique aspect of inheritance, really, in normal circumstances is someone does all the work, someone does all the hard work, and accumulates all this stuff and all this money and all this thing, and then they die, and then somebody else gets the inheritance they didn't work for. They just get it. Where there's a will, there's a relative. That's the idea behind inheritance. And in this business of salvation, you see, somebody else does the work for us, Someone achieves this salvation. Someone accomplishes this salvation. Someone sweats blood for this salvation. Someone dies for this salvation. We receive it as inheritors. We get it free at the point of delivery. We are heirs of this salvation because we are adopted into the family of God. By our relationship with Jesus Christ, we are adopted into His family. Now, that's the salvation that's in view, and we'll unpack that other times, but this morning the writer has three very simple things to say to us as we consider that we are heirs of salvation. We are going to inherit salvation. Here's what he says. First of all, this word of salvation needs serious attention, serious attention. Therefore, he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. He's talking to all of us, we, us. He, the writer, is drawing us close to him. He is urging all of us to keep on in our Christian profession. He is telling all of us that we are to pay attention, we are to listen up to this God-proclaimed message of salvation, to the God who spoke through the prophets, and who has now spoken to us by one who is Son, that final word that has been spoken. He's saying that we are to give attention to the word spoken to Israel and the word spoken to the church it 's the same Word of God, both are true. it is all one. there is continuity between part one and part two, but there is a superiority in part two because it is the full final revelation. So all of that theology we 've been looking at in chapter one is, is not just a little sideshow it 's not a, an academic exercise it is the foundational truth on which our salvation is built. If that wasn't all true, we would have no salvation. It would be not dependable or reliable. It would not work for us. The Son has a superior claim on our attention and on our obedience. Angels, well, they were great. They did a good job. They were spokesmen when they needed to be. They were sent out on missions when there were missions to be performed. But the Son is superior to the angels. And so having said all of that, chapter 2, he says to us with this warning that we must not take it lightly. Because if we take it lightly, we are in danger of drifting away from the truth the idea of a boat. I think of. A, I was telling the children earlier, I remember an occasion, my wife does not know about this, when we were on a lake in Canada and we'd been out on the, on the canoe, me and the children, and we'd come back to a little dock and I had put a stone or something on the rope, or done something anyway, and thought it was all right. I rushed into the house for something and came back out of the thing and there's the boat over in the middle of Eagle Lake somewhere in northern Canada. Fortunately, I managed to retrieve the boat and the children in it. Oh, did I forget to mention that little, that little aspect? Uh, before anybody <clears throat> anybody found out, and I've kept it a secret till now, I felt it would be safe in numbers, safety in numbers, to tell you this morning. It just drifted away. It just drifted away. And that, you know, is something that happens. can happen so easily in the Christian life. That's what the writer is saying here. There is a kind of carelessness of mind, uh, perhaps a preoccupation with other things, a lack of awareness of going on, a kind of drifting, which is the opposite of going on to maturity, which the writer talks about, or, or drawing near confidently to God, or running the race that is set before us. All of those metaphors are used of the Christian life and that they're energetic uh, metaphors, aren't they? they, there's, There's action involved. There's determination involved. Grow up into maturity. Draw near to God with confidence. Run the race that's set before you. And it can happen so silently, secretly, without you noticing. Maybe it begins because you're a bit nervous about making too much about your Christian profession in public, or you're, you're, you're afraid. I mean, the, the, the kinds of seasons in which it's easy to drift are probably seasons where, for example, you're experiencing or enjoying peace and prosperity. Things are going well in your life. You're well, the kids are well, family's well, world's well, everything's well, career's going famously, you're doing famously, everything is just whoopity doo, it's great. And in those circumstances, well, serious thoughts aren't the kind of thoughts you want to have. And in those circumstances, it's very easy to drift silently and find yourself a month, two months, two years, ten years far away from where you are today. The danger of drifting. There are seasons of persecution. And we go through minor persecutions. We, we, we're being pilloried in the media all the time as Christians, and it would be very easy in in a time like that just to kind of soft-pedal, you know, understate, maybe not state at all your Christian profession, and in such periods of persecution, whether it's the kind of ongoing, niggling, annoying, frustrating, hammering away at us by the press and the media, or whether it's the kind of crucifying and burning and destruction that other believers are experiencing in the Middle East today. Whether it's one or the other, in those days we can easily drift away. Periods of temptation. There are not only seasons, but there are also tendencies. Maybe my love for the world, or my love of praise, or my love of success, or my love of being applauded, or being accepted, or being part of the crowd, or perhaps love of sin, or love or or a failure to recognize or even consider that there may be false doctrine swirling around in the church of God. Uh, This has happened in the history of the church. In the last 100 years, the foundational doctrine of our religion The thing that distinguishes Christianity from Islam and Judaism is the doctrine of the Trinity. And over the last hundred years, we were assuming everybody knew what we meant when we said Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We were assuming we knew what the doctrine of the Trinity was. We thought we knew. And as someone has said, the first generation knows what they believe. The second generation assumes that they know what they believe, and the third generation can't for the life of them remember what it was they were meant to believe in the first place. That's what happens. And so the writer is saying to us, listen, you've heard all this stuff I've been teaching you. You've had had 12 weeks of it. He managed to do it in a few sentences and paragraphs. We just kind of took a bit more time over it but he's saying you must pay much closer attention to what you've heard, lest you inadvertently, unselfconsciously drift away from the truth. Pay attention, because this word of salvation needs serious attention. That's why the Bible is always telling us to listen. You see, brothers and sisters. We leak truth. We, we, if, it, if it's not regularly preached, if it's not regularly reflected on, if we don't regularly dig deep into the Bible and ask ourselves the big questions, we will lose it. We will lose it. It's happened before, and it will happen again. So there's the first thing, this word of salvation needs serious attention. Secondly, this word of tr- salvation requires sober reflection. For since the message, read with me, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received its just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's a reference to angels. You notice? That's taking us back to the Old Testament, back to Mount Sinai, where Paul says it was angels that God used as a means of communicating with Moses the law of God. Now, angels are supernatural beings. Angels are amazingly huge creatures. They are spectacular creatures. We can't see them. They're spirits. But they're there, and God made them, and He made them in a special way And they are above us in the scheme of things. They're above us. And so, there's something awesome. When the angels are coming to Moses and they're speaking on God's behalf to Moses, there in Mount Sinai, the mountains shake, the people shake. Everything shakes. Because God is on the march and God is on the move and God is being heard. And when the people ignored it, when they when they ignored what God was saying. When down at the base of Mount Sinai, they decided they would worship the God of heaven, the God of Israel, but they needed something to help them them get their heads around Him. So they would make this golden calf out of the gold they'd taken with them from Egypt. And so they made the golden calf, and they worshiped the God of Israel through the golden calf. It was their medium through which they might worship God. And the next morning, God comes, He moves in, and He destroys them. And they never actually ever got that idolatry of other gods out of their system. No matter how often God sent prophets to them, no matter how often they were channel, challenged about these things, they were always there, always reverting back, never quite forsaking the God of Israel, but worshiping the God of Israel and worshiping these idols as well. And then, for forty years, God takes them away from their own place. Their cities destroyed, their countryside is destroyed. Their people are scattered everywhere for 40 years. They're there in, in, uh, in the desert, and then later on they're taken in for 70 years into Babylon in captivity. In other words, God's Word that came by the angels was a serious Word, and the threats as well as the promises of that Word were carried out on the children of Israel. And Jesus... He speaks in these terms in Matthew chapter 11, verse 24, 20 to 24. We read this about Jesus when He began to denounce the cities where most of His mighty works had been done because they did not repent. He said, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. In other words, in the words of Jesus, there are threats as well as promises. And what the writer is saying is this. Read what he says. Since the message declared by angels, proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape who neglect such a great salvation which comes from the very lips of the Son of God Himself, which centers around the person of the Son of God Himself, which has to do with the crucifixion of the Son of God Himself? how shall we escape if we neglect that salvation? I said this to you this morning. You're not a Christian person. You're sitting in church. You're hearing the message. God has a rescue operation, a rescue package designed for you to rescue you from the coming wrath, to rescue you from death and hell, to rescue you from the effects of our rebellion against Him. It's free at the point of delivery. But if you neglect it, if you reject it, there is absolutely no hope that I can give to you. As a minister of the gospel, I've had to preach at many funerals. In one occasion, I had to preach at the funeral of a gangster, and the place was full of the gangster's men and undercover policemen who were looking out for these people who were there because they were absolutely sure that he'd been killed by one of the people at his own funeral, at his funeral. This guy had been murdered. And I was to preach the sermon. There was nothing good I could say about this guy. So I did what I often do, and I'm in that situation. I got up and I said, I forget what his name was, but let's call him Jimmy. Because uh, everybody in Scotland is Jimmy if you don't know their name. You say Jimmy, and everybody will turn around and respond. And I said, uh, I didn't know Jimmy. But I do know this, that if Jimmy could talk to you in this room today, he would want me to say to you, there is a heaven and there is a hell. Do all in your power not to go to hell. I think they probably got what I was saying. Of course, I preached a bit more than that, but that was kind of my line. And I want to say it to you this morning. Hell is real. Judgment is real. There is rescue. Don't neglect it. Don't neglect it. Well, the word of, truth, the word of salvation requires sober reflection. It needs serious attention. But the third thing I want to say is the word of salvation has supreme accreditation. Supreme accreditation he goes on to show us this in verse 3 it was declared he says first by the lord he gives three reasons three grounds of its accreditation first of all it was spoken by the lord the lord remember that word lord we've already looked at this it helps us to consider the lord jesus in two ways absolutely and relatively. Absolutely, that is what He is as uh, uh, the Lord God, relatively what He is to us as the Mediator and Savior. So, this word, absolutely, we consider the word the Son absolutely as God the Lord. the the very title emphasizes that both his eternal throne as God the Son and his mediatorial, that is, his work in relation to us and our relationship to God. He is the the mediator, the go-between, the one in between us and God. That role as the God-man, the man who in his own being now is the God-man and is suited to touch heaven and earth and bring us to God. He has all the authority of heaven. All the power and authority of heaven to do what is required for our salvation as God. That's Him considered absolutely. But we must also consider Him relatively. That is in His humanity. What He is to us, He is the man, Christ, Jesus. In our skin, He came and He spoke to us. He came preaching the Word of God. He came talking about the kingdom of God. He came claiming to be the king in God's kingdom. He came offering life to people. He came to throw light on the mysteries of the Holy Scripture. When he took on our humanity in the enfleshment of the Son of God, when he announced the kingdom of God, when he was preaching prophetic messages and predicting what is to come, and then eventually when as a priest... He offered His own body as a sacrifice in our place in order to rescue us. He was acting as our Savior. This good news message was first spoken by the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And secondly, this message of salvation was attested to us by those who heard it. These are the men called the apostles. They were those that Jesus had called together to Himself, that they would walk with Him, that they would watch Him, that they would pick up in every word He said. He said about these men that these men would have the task of remembering by the power of the Spirit everything Jesus had said. These men would have the task by the power of the Holy Spirit of leading us into all the truth about Jesus. In other words, their task was to finish and perfect the revelation that Jesus had come to give and to pass it on, to promulgate it, to, to pass it on to us. They were the ear witnesses and the eyewitnesses. So this great message of salvation was preached, spoken by the Lord. It was validated by the apostles And it was confirmed by God Himself. While God also, look at the words, bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. It was confirmed as divine by God. Do you notice that? God also bore witness through signs and wonders. That takes us right back to Moses, takes us right back to Egypt, to the plagues of Egypt where there were signs, that were miraculous signs of the power of God, to the opening of the Red Sea and the marching of over a million people on dry land, of the 40 years wandering in the wilderness being fed by manna in the morning and by water from the rock, being led by the pillar of fire and smoke that guided them by day and rested over them by night. By being brought across the Jordan into the promised land. All of these mighty acts of God are captured in the language of signs and wonders. Signs, they point to the presence of God. Wonders, they are works beyond nature. They are they, they are beyond natural causes and miracles where power, the power of God is exerted. And along with them gifts of the Holy Spirit as people on the day of Pentecost hear other people who haven't learned their language speaking in their own language the mighty works of God. These were God's testimony. The people who lived there saw these things. They saw Jesus doing these mighty works. And then they saw the apostles doing exactly what Jesus had done. And they saw it. They said, so the book of Acts tells us, they took notice of these men that they had been with Jesus. Why? They remembered what Jesus did. They saw them doing the same thing and even more things than Jesus did. And they took note of these men. But these men did not turn the attention to themselves. They pointed everybody to Jesus. They were only the servants. He was the master. This message started in heaven, came from God, was announced by the God-man, was then published abroad by his apostles, whose role was confirmed by the mighty acts of God that surrounded their ministry, what Paul calls the signs of an apostle. And in that way, the message has come to the world. The message has come to you this morning. There is a rescue package. It is free at the point of delivery. You can become an heir to that inheritance. Life that starts now, life that is better to come. Sometimes, you know, inheritance work, work like this. You get something when you're 21, you get a little allowance. The little allowance is a kind of foretaste of what is to come. When you become a Christian, you get everlasting life right at the moment you trust in Jesus. And you have it right throughout your life. This spiritual life is there pulsating in your soul, giving life to your soul, manifesting itself in in your interest in spiritual things which other people don't have, in your love of God which others don't know. Life, spiritual life. But it is nothing in comparison to that life that is coming to you as a child of God. Now, I ask you this morning, do you know you have that life? Do you know that you are, in fact, a child of God? Do you know that you are, in fact, a co-heir with Christ of an inheritance that He has promised still to come? Do you know for a fact that that is yours this morning? Do you have that conviction in your heart? Do you have it in your heart? Are you resting, trusting, Only in the Lord Jesus Christ for your eternal destiny. I I say to you, men and women, this is more, we've just lived through a very significant change in our circumstances as a nation. We have just seen the transition from one government to another, and the future may be amazingly changed. Well, we hope it's all. We always hope. Every, every new government that comes into being, our hope and prayer is that it will bring great blessing to the people and great honor and so on to God, and that things will be done well and things will help people out wherever they, they're in need of help and so on. That's always our prayer. But I want to say to you as solemnly as I possibly can this morning what you have heard from the Word of God this morning far exceeds any promise ever made by a politician far exceeds any hope ever expressed of a human government. Far exceeds any sense of weight or authority that you feel or find when you consider the power of the powers to be. that, that be. Because this morning you are hearing from Almighty God about His salvation, His rescue package that will rescue you from death and hell rescue this planet we are on from its bondage to decay that will rescue this universe from its disintegration and will bring in the end all things together in Christ for the glory of God do you have that assurance this morning is that yours can you leave here this morning with that assurance that that is yours inheritance. I'm going to pray now that you can. Let's pray. Father, we pray together that for any who are uncertain or unclear, they would know for absolute certainty today that this Jesus, whom you raised from the dead, whom you've exalted to your right hand, is both Lord and Christ, Lord God and Lord Christ, Lord Messiah, that He is your Son and our Savior, that the Son of God became the Son of Man, that sons of men might become sons of God, and that being a son of God for men and women, boys and girls, sons of God means being an heir of the salvation that the Lord Jesus accomplished. We pray that this morning that would break through and people would rejoice in this salvation with us today, this moment, this very second. Bring salvation, we pray, to someone's heart. In Jesus' name, amen.